As you also know, in review, one of the themes that's run through this series is that of Coram Deo, the Latin term that simply means in the presence of, or before the face of God. And so for everyone, that is true. We live out life before God. But especially, it is true for the Christian. That is that before the face of God, in a posture of worship, wherever you go and whatever you do, if you are in Christ, you are called to live continually as a worshiper in His presence. So today we're going to consider the concept of family worship. How does our identity as worshipers spill over into and impact our family? If you have your Bibles, if you would, let's open them to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles uh, should be under the seat in front of you. We're going to spend some time in Joshua a little bit. We're also going to spend some time in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So you can go ahead and keep your Bibles handy if you want, though we, though we should have uh, slides for those. The title of my sermon this morning won't surprise some of you. Family worship is frontline warfare. My main idea is that your family is under attack and you need to make some decisions. We're going to break this down into two main points. One is what is the family and why is it under attack? And the second is The enemy is not flesh and blood, but is spiritual. So with that, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. We respond together. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Kids, I think there is uh, a, a sheet for you guys to, uh, to work through. Uh, I forgot to look at it beforehand, but uh, I think um, some of it matches up to what I'm going to say, thanks to David Yeiser's faithful service. Um, but also, I want to invite you to, uh, as I preach this morning... I want to invite the kids in the room to draw pictures of their family. Um, What's your favorite thing about your family? Draw your family. However you want to do it, I'm going to leave that up to you. And I would love to see your pictures after the service if you would be willing to show them to me. Also, I want to acknowledge first that this sermon is topical in nature. So if you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that's not our standard practice. 
We are committed to expository preaching here, but the nature of the series and my topic this morning resulted in what is more of a topical sermon. But I do pray that it is faithful and that God will use it. So why have I chosen this text? It is not because it contains Hobby Lobby's most popular household wall art. It's because in many ways, the situation that the Israelites found themselves in, in this section of scripture, reflects where the Western church is today. I hope to show you that. Also, I've taken a little bit of a different approach to this sermon than what may have been imagined when the series was mapped out for us by Tanner. But my thinking is this. In order to live out our identity as worshipers in the context of family, we need to understand God's original intent and design for the family. The family is not a cultural construct. It is not a societal invention. As we will see, the family is a foundational component of God's design and purpose in creation. I'm going to argue that it is for this reason that the family has become the central battlefield in a cosmic spiritual war that has been raging since time began. Attempts to restructure the family into a design of our own preferences and the belief that humans can choose, reassign, and redesign their sexuality and gender because their creator has made some fundamental blunder are symptomatic of a deeper rebellion. This rebellion is not merely against social norms but it is against the very order and nature of creation as established by God. Those who espouse and advance these actions and ideologies put our identity as worshipers on full display. As they exchange worship of the creator and sustainer of life for worship of creation and of self. I believe the attack on the family is the most direct attack on the church in America's history. What's more, the implications and consequences of this current spiritual attack on the family will likely result in Christians facing physical persecution, the loss of jobs and careers, government intervention in your private family affairs, the confiscation of your children, imprisonment, and so on. And I believe that we are currently losing this battle. Primarily because Christians in the Western world have enjoyed an extended season of relative peace. We have rarely faced an attack of such consequence. But there is hope. The Lord is faithful and he is mighty in battle. In him, we have everything we need to be victorious. But we must understand the battlefield, that is, the family. We must understand the enemy, and we must have a plan. So, as we move to our first point, I want to look at verse 15 again. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to focus on this last statement first. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Each family has a decision to make. You cannot ignore it any longer or hope that this is going to go away. Each family must decide. To successfully stand against the devil in this battle, we need a deep and clear understanding of God's design and purpose for the family. And so that is what I want to do for the next few minutes. So my first point, the battleground. What is the family and why is it under attack? I want to use some of my time to define what the family is and why it is so critical that it be defended at all costs. If you are a Christian, it is extraordinarily important that you understand and know what the Bible says about the family and that it is the only authority that matters. Only to the extent that another source or institution's definitions or designs for the family align with the Bibles do we acknowledge them. All other variations or designs on the family are fraudulent and will ultimately prove destructive to all people and societies. Also critically important as Christians, we are called to love our neighbors and to serve them in love. To build a structure as important as the family on a faulty foundation puts others at imminent risk that we would be accountable for. Therefore, we must reject anything less than God's standard for structuring and constructing society. So with that, I have attempted to define the family. For my own sake mainly, but it made it into the sermon. I hope that it is helpful and I will break it down into its component parts. We're going to start with part one. It goes like this. The family is at the center of God's design for the cosmos. In and through the family, all things in a society find their proper place. And from the family, societies and civilizations grow and prosper. The family is at the center of God's design for the cosmos. This will come as a shock to many who believe that they are actually at the center of the cosmos. But in all seriousness, one of the transitions our cultures has made over the past 50 to 75 years is a shift to more individualistic thinking. The family has become something of a launching pad for the individual rather than the, family, the individual being a contributing member to the long-term health and well-being of the family. In and through the family, this is the second part of the, um, of the definition you've heard, in and through the family, all things in a society find their proper place. And from the family, societies and civilizations grow and prosper. If this is true, and if there are forces that aim to thwart God's plan for humanity, it stands to reason that the most effective place to attack 
would be the family. So let's take a look at Scripture and see if this definition has legs. It's built on Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and I'll walk you through the verses. I'm going to start with Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here is God at the inception of humanity giving purpose to humanity. These verses are known as the creation mandate and they define God's intentions for humanity. Christian orthodoxy would translate this to mean get married and make babies. This is further clarified in Genesis 2.24 where we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Don't miss that phrase, hold fast. He shall not let her go no matter what. How can he? The two have become one. From the very beginning, God's intentions for marriage were made clear and it is the height of arrogance to try and argue otherwise. This, of course, is the foundation for the family and as we will see soon, it is the foundation of society and all that comes with it. While there is great effort being put into redefining the family, the family and its structure today, according to Scripture, God's design is for a man and a woman to become one flesh, to be fruitful, to multiply, for those children to leave their father and mother, to find a marriage partner, to join together, to create a new family in order to fill the earth with humans. We want to depopulate the world. This is the exact opposite of God's stated intentions. That is the clear design put forth in Scripture. And it is for this reason that any sexual relational structure that deviates from that design, including, but not limited to, sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, transgender identification, polygamy, pedophilia, is just that. It is a deviation, and it will naturally prove destructive to the individuals and to the societies in which they live. The next part of that verse says, to subdue and to have dominion over the earth. This also becomes more clear as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and following, where we see that God gives Adam and Eve instructions to work and to care for the garden in which he had placed them. This is really important. Upon completing creation, you'll remember in Genesis chapter 1, God surveyed all that he had made 
And he said, behold, it was very good. It was very good. We tend to think of it as having been perfect because it was before the fall. It was paradise. But God didn't say that it was perfect if perfect means that it takes care of itself and all we've got to do is run through it like a park. In fact, he instructed them to tend it and to care for it in Genesis chapter 2. What that means is he's telling them to They're going to have to cut paths and make trails and trim and graft trees. Somehow it meant that what God had made so beautiful could actually be made more beautiful. That creation could be improved upon by the contribution and effort of His people. It meant that creation needed to be subdued and ruled over. And it was now the task of families to do that. And by being faithful to this mandate that we begin, we begin to find resources. We begin to build structures and societies and economies. People growing families while subduing and, subduing and ruling over the earth leads to greater human flourishing by design. God embedded all manner of resources that we are still to this day discovering and growing in our understanding of and use for. Within creation, there was embedded the ability to make fire. It was there. They just had to follow the mandate. There was the ability to harness hydraulics to build a raft and float a boat down a river and move heavy things without having to pick them up and carry them through the woods. It was there. There were vast stores of gold, silver, iron, copper, which would later, we would later learn to use to make tools and jewelry and coins and build infrastructure that would, over time, drastically improve human flourishing people growing families while faithfully subduing and ruling over the earth leads to greater human flourishing by design, which ultimately leads to societies and civilizations being built. The family is at the center of God's design for the cosmos. In and through the family, all things in a society find their proper place, and from the family, societies and civilizations grow and prosper. It was all there, built right in by design. And all we had to do was to be faithful and to work, to use the creative power that our Creator had given to us to slowly unlock all that was needed to build healthy communities and thriving civilizations. God's design was human flourishing through the family that he would care for and who would worship him. But alas, there's Genesis chapter 3, where sin enters the picture. 
At the fall, we rebelled against God and we brought the curse of sin on all of creation. When you read chapter 3, it's important to note that at the end, the mandate did not change. We are still commanded to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue and to rule over creation. But it's going to be much, much more difficult now. And rather than unhindered flourishing, improvement, and blessing that would have resulted from our labor, there would now be suffering. There would be loss. Everything would be harder. Nothing would be as it could have been. Which brings us back to the definition of the family, because it's not done yet. You see, the family is not perfect. When sin became a part of the human experience, it invaded every aspect of creation. And sadly, often where we experience sin most profoundly is through those relationships or the lack of them with those with whom we should be closest. There are people in this room who are blessed with a wonderful family. Praise God for that. For many, though, the memories and experiences of their family are very painful for any number of reasons. If Christians are going to make a claim to a fundamental aspect of the human experience and its purpose, then we must, and we must, then we need to also be honest about the damage that sin has wrought on it. The family in its original design, like all of creation, was very good. But sin has corrupted it. And as we seek to live faithfully to God's mandate, then we will experience the pain and the suffering that result from that sin. But Christ has overcome sin and defeated death. And so as we experience the pain and rejection and hopelessness that sin can bring, we must let it draw us closer to Christ, not push us farther away. So to complete our definition, I've got this. It needs some work, admittedly. The family is at the center of God's design for the cosmos, and in the end and through the family, all things in society find their place, and from the family, societies grow and prosper. But like the rest of creation, the family is under the curse of sin. Families must, therefore, lean into Christ, seeking to be faithful to God's design rather than rejecting it for a design of their own making. This brings us to our second point. The enemy is not flesh and blood, but spiritual. I want to go back to our text and take note of something very interesting At the time of our text, and I would encourage you in family group this week, uh, if you have time or in your own devotion time, go back and and look at uh, Joshua chapter 23 and 24. They are connected. At this time, Joshua's at the end of drawing near to the end of his life. He's called the Israelites and all the leaders together to reflect on where they've been and to help them see the dangers of what lies ahead In chapter 24, prior to our verses this morning, he is 
revisiting, among other things, the Israelites' defeat of the Egyptian army. Their defeat, or their victorious battle over the Moabites as they wandered in the desert. And then in verse 11, it says this, And you went over the Jordan, and you came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. But I want you to notice something that happens as we look then to our verses for this morning. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of you, that your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't know if you caught it, but what's, what it's saying there is, is that the primary enemy was never the people, and the armies. Even though they are listed, and even though they are necessarily battled against, and even though they seem like the enemy because they're the ones that are right in front of us attacking us, they're the ones that it would seem that we have to defeat. But that is not what the text says. In fact, that's not what any of Scripture says. Go read the story of David and Goliath. You'll see it all throughout is my point. Here in this pivotal moment of Israel's existence all the way back in the way back of the Old Testament, God is reminding the Israelites that their future does not rest on whether or not they can physically defeat the armies of their enemies, but rather it depends on the God whom they choose to serve. The battle is first and foremost spiritual. It is not physical. This is so important for us to understand. One of the primary reasons the battle we are facing is so difficult is because it hits so close to home, literally the family. And many of the challenges that the church has faced over the past 50 to 75 years have been ideological in nature. They've been debates that get us emotional. And they have consequences, to be sure. But rarely are those consequences life-changing for us so directly. Rarely are they right in the middle of our family. Rarely are they actually with our neighbor. To the extent that they have divisive consequences. But as a result of the moral decline of our nation, as a result of the sexual revolution, as a result of the politicization of these issues, the church now faces a direct cultural attack on the central institution of God's design. And the attack seems like it is coming from people that we know. Sometimes people that we love very much. And it is causing destruction. 
Often it feels like the people or the person doing the attacking is the enemy. Our natural tendency is to want to fight back in anger. That is mine. To lash out and defend ourselves and our beliefs. It's easy to get angry when someone is attacking something that is so precious to you. Sometimes we believe something we believe is so precious to humanity, and if we are not crystal clear on who that enemy and what that battle is, then we will lash out in that way. But our text this morning reminds us that they are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. Israel's enemy wasn't the Amorites or the Canaanites. It was the gods of the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Egyptians. And so it is with us today. It is not the people who are attacking us who are our enemies. It is the power behind the attack. And it is here that we can and we must fight. It is my experience and my opinion that we generally have a terrible theology of spiritual warfare in the West. That is a hyper-generalized statement. (laughs) I started it with, it has been my experience, and I grew up in the church. But isn't that what Satan would want? Because now that we are facing the reality of spiritual warfare, and it's being manifest in such tangible ways around us, I'm not sure that we have the knowledge or the tools to recognize it. And so we're often trying to fight with worldly wisdom and cultural logic while dealing with something far more sinister. So here's the reality. I want you to think about this with me. Think about, I want you to, Really stop and think for a second and try and imagine with me what it is that we believe. Like cosmic level. The spiritual nature of what we believe. I want you to try and visualize what I'm about to say. When you were saved by placing your faith in Jesus, who shed his blood to save you from your sin and from death and gave you eternal life with him, when that happened, you entered into a covenant with the creator, God. And everything changed. You became a child of God. The king of kings the Lord of lords. You became a citizen of heaven. You became a sojourner on earth. You were granted eternal life. And the cost was the death of the Son of God, Jesus. It is difficult to conceive of much less communicate how high the stakes are that we are talking about. Something eternal and of magnificent consequence 
must be taking place for this to be happening. Why did he have to die? Who or what was defeated in his resurrection? Since the creation of the world, there has been a cosmic battle for the souls of humanity. And necessarily, you and I are wrapped up in it. And we make a grave error when we view these gods in Joshua as simple, inanimate objects. We often think of them as no more than wooden carvings or maybe golden calves. When in reality, the wooden carvings and the golden calves are graven images made for their chosen gods in which to reside. Here's what I'm saying to you. Their gods are real beings. They are real. They are not gods like our God. They are demonic forces who have been granted some level of authority. Satan is real. And he has armies. There is a hierarchy of demonic beings who roam the spiritual realm, moving in and out of the physical realm, and their desire is for you. That is the enemy. That has always been the enemy. Part of the process of Christian sanctification is growing in our ability to distinguish between the trials and tribulations of the physical world and the attacks from the spiritual world. Ephesians 6.12 We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Remember that. That's me talking to me, by the way. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If there is one thing that could create a paradigm shift in the way that you think and experience the world, it would be to try and get your mind around that verse. People are not the enemy. The prince of darkness is the enemy. Demons and demonic forces are the enemy. And they are coming for your family. As we move to conclusion, how do we respond? I have three takeaways. These are not all of them, but they're a start. First, our identities as worshipers extends to all of life. And that includes the family. One could even argue that that identity begins there. Like the Israelites, we must make a choice about who our family will serve. The gods of our culture, I hope that it is setting in that they are real. They're not playthings. And we play with them. Or will we serve God the Father, the God of gods? 
We have enjoyed peacetime for so long that I fear we have grown far too comfortable with the gods of our culture. Over and over again, God warned the Israelites not to align with the culture. In chapter 23, you can read that he says, they will be a snare, a trap, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. They are a danger. If we are going to preserve the family and its role as God intended it, then we are going to have to begin to be more purposeful in our decisions. If you are thinking about this for like this week or this month or this year, you are not thinking big enough. We are going to have to be more purposeful in our decisions over our lifetime, generationally. This is the question that I keep asking myself. I know my convictions. But how will my children's children, for many of you in this room, and this is where so much of this burden comes from, How will your children navigate their childhood and their teenage years and hold on to the conviction that God's design for the family must be preserved? What is your plan to battle against this cultural tidal wave which is animated and strengthened by the forces of evil in the heavenly places? By that I mean the tidal wave has power and it would be a grave mistake to treat it casually. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our first response is that we must choose now who we will serve. Our second response. Another proper response is to reclaim the biblical model of the household. I know there is sin and brokenness. I know there are families and children from broken homes in this room. I know there are unbelieving spouses. I know there are some who have been abused by family members. And based on that alone in isolation, it may be understandable why our cultural would decide, a culture would decide that that model is broken and seek to redesign it. But that is not the proper response. So I will speak to the men in this room. Men, it is time to take courage. Your family, your family's identity as worshipers begins with you. Joshua said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Men, Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. If if you are chasing down some selfish dream at the expense of your family, 
or you are stuck in some sin because you are too selfish to pull some brothers aside and get some help, it is time to make some changes. Your family is depending on it. Family worship begins with you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Men, this is a battle for your family, and it begins with you. This is no time for selfishness and this is no time for cowardice. Ladies, pray for the men in your church. Pray for the young men and for the future husbands and fathers. Pray for the boys who will one one day grow up and lead our families and our institutions. They are losing their identity. They are unsure of their roles. And they need your prayers. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the word of the Lord. This is not shameful. This is honorable. This is piety. And in Christ, it is beautiful and it contributes to human flourishing. Pray for your husbands. It is an act of family worship. They are fighting a war and your family, for your family and the stakes are very high, which brings me to number three and to close. A proper response would be prayer, fasting, and feeding on God's word. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Your family and your friends and your coworkers who are buying into this attack on the family believe that they are doing what is right. They believe they are being loving. To fight successfully, we must choose daily to pray for the family and all of its members. Pray for your family and for its future. That you would be faithful worshipers of God in all of life. Fasting, sacrificially and regularly for the sake of Christ. 
make a plan to set aside time regularly to sacrifice something that you desire for Christ's sake and for the sake of the family. We must not mislead or play along. We must hold to the truth of God's word. But we can do this as an act of worship in the spirit with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Each week as a family, we gather around this table to remember what Christ has done for us. Nearly all of the ways that we understand our faith are based on the family. He's God the Father. We are his children. We've been adopted. We have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven and so on. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. And each time you eat of it, remember me. And he took a cup of wine and he poured it out. And he said that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And each time you drink of it, Do it in remembrance of me. Antioch family, we invite you to come and to join us at this table. As you know, we'll form two lines. Gluten-free will be on the right. If you're not a believer and you're here this morning, our call to you is to not take this meal. It's not for you. Take Christ. I'll be in the back. Other pastors will be in the back. I don't know how this message lands, but if you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk about it with you. I'll be in the back as well. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword and cuts through bone and marrow. Father, we thank you for truth that you've given it to us in your Son and through your Word. I pray that you would take these words now and use them as you see fit. I pray that you have been honored and glorified and that we have been edified. In Jesus' name, amen.